Tonight we're going to be studying Parashat Vayechi, and uh, I wanted to just point out actually something that uh, that I observed this year about Parashat Vayechi that uh, I hadn't focused on as much in the past maybe, and that is that there is a, 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 a striking similarity in many ways, or a, you know, thematic and also even stylistic similarity between Parashat Vayechi and Parashat Chayei Sarah. It might be obvious. Maybe what I'm saying is something that everyone's noticed before, but it's not something that I had really focused on much before. Maybe in the back of my mind it occurred to me. But if you look at the language of these two parashiot of Chayei Sarah and, uh, and Vayichi, even the name Chayei Sarah, the life of Sarah, and Vayichi, he lived, referring to Yaakov, there's a, obviously it's the same verb of living, but it's also about death, and it also, uh, the, the, the main focus is on a funeral in, in both cases. I mean, in Chayei Sarah, there's the conclusion, which is the marriage of Yitzchak to Rivka, but there is a, uh, an emphasis on the acquisition of the burial plot of Marat Machpela in Chayei Sarah. And that, obviously, we have here as well. We have an emphasis on Marat Machpela as the ultimate destination and place of rest of Yaakov after his passing. Uh, we also have... Here, just as there, an oath being made uh, by the, you know, be, the, the patriarch soliciting an oath from somebody. Now, in the case of Chayei Sarah, it is uh, Avraham Avinu asking Eliezer or his servant to uh, commit to choosing the proper wife for Yitzchak. And therefore, there is a, uh, a ritualistic oath that is made over there with the hand under the thigh. And here we have exactly the same formulation with, with in this case, Yaakov insisting that after his death, uh, that, um, that uh, Yosef see to it that he's buried in Marat HaMachpelah. Now, obviously, the request is not the same, but I feel that there is a, a clear uh, parallel being drawn or similarity that is being, a, uh, that, that is being uh, deliberately played upon between these two parashiot, and there's no question that, you know, Chayei Sarah in a certain way is a, is a type of a conclusion of a section of the, of, of Sefer Boreshit, because the first of the Avot and Imahot, Avram and Sarah, their life is significant, obviously, as the prelude to what is to come after, but also in its own right, very significant, because they are the first in every way. They're the first to establish a Jewish cemetery, if you will. They're the first to establish the concept of marriage within a Jewish family and setting the whole direction of Am Yisrael. And here that kind of comes full circle as we have Yaakov trying to ensure also the continuity of the legacy that he's passing on to his children and to make sure that he's buried in Marat HaMachpelah that their connection to Eretz Yisrael remains strong, just like Avram Avinu expressed the concern that Yitzchak should not ever be returned to the place of uh, Avraham's origin. He should never go there, but he should remain in Eretz Yisrael. We have the same idea, the emphasis here on Yaakov wanting to be sure that he's going to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So there, there are definite echoes, to me at least, and, and maybe you'll say I'm, I'm exaggerating it, or maybe it's, uh, maybe it's simply... Um, uh, maybe it's uh, these are common themes, and and there's no deliberate uh, there's no deliberate attempt here to connect the two stories. But my sense my my sense is that there's a definite relationship between the story of Chaye Sarah 
in so many ways, the language of it, the, uh, the emphasis on Eretz Yisrael, the emphasis on burial, the emphasis on continuity and passing legacy on to the next generation, the, uh, all of these are rehashed. And even the idea of an oath being made, a commitment being made to preserve the legacy, we find in both parashiot. So I think that there's a kind of a double ending almost to the book of Boishit. Avraham, Avinu, and Sarah are the end of an era, but now we have another end of an era, which is the end of the era of the patriarchs. It's, it's interesting that the rabbis also identify Avraham and Sarah in a way as a part of the chain of the Avot and in a way as, uh, as their own significant power couple independent of the other avot. So, the, for example, the rabbis mention that, or they point out that in our tefillot, we say, We mention all three of the avot in the tefillah, but at the end we say, We only mention Avraham in the closing of the Amidah, meaning that he has a special significance, his life and the, uh, the, the decisions that he made, the choices that he made, and the, uh, the conclusion of his life and the life of Sarah are significant in their own right, not just as a prelude to the development that takes place in the uh, in the lives of Yitzchak, Yaakov, and the, and their descendants. So there's something about Avraham and Sarah that is a its own story, its own arc. And here we see an arc of a narrative that of of uh, Yaakov coming to an end, which is almost embodies like the whole narrative of of uh, Sefer Brishit, but coming back full circle to that Chaye Sarah kind of ending, where the life of Yaakov uh, coming to its conclusion and his return to Marat and the return to the emphasis on Eretz Yisrael. Is uh, you know is a an echo of of Chayesara. but let's just see what the uh, it, uh, clearly the burial of of Yaakov Vinu is of great significance. There are two really two themes in the parasha that uh, are most pronounced. One of them is the theme of the brachot or the final will and testament and messages that uh, Yaakov Avinu con- conveys to his children and grandchildren. Here, that is certainly uh, the most um, I would guess probably the most talked about aspect of the parasha are these bachot and the significance of the, um, uh, especially of Ephraim and Menashez bacha, and also of the bachot that were, bachot or, or statements or, or messages that were conveyed to the individual sons prior to the death of Yaakov Avinu. But I would just like to focus on the burial, the death and burial of Yaakov Avinu, because in the beginning of the parasha, that's how it opens, and the conclusion of the book of Bereshit is the death of Yaakov and his, his, his funeral, which for some reason the Torah sees fit to go into great detail describing this funeral, as well as the death of Yosef, which also points to, its, you know, it is literally <coughs> the concluding pasuk, the concluding verse of the book of Bereshit is about Yosef's death and placement in a casket in Egypt, meaning that he was never buried formally in officially in Egypt in any way. And so let's just take a look at this angle of, I know it's a little bit morose, maybe it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not necessarily the most pleasant thing to talk about death, but I think that the Torah spends a lot of time on it for a reason. So, Yaakov spent 17 years in Egypt. He lived to be 147 years old, which is not bad, although it's, he did not live, as he said to Paro, he didn't live to the ages of his, uh, uh, of his father and grandfather. Right? The days of Israel came close to dying. Now notice that it changes, and, and as I mentioned uh, the other day, somebody had asked about Yaakov versus Israel. You see here very clearly, Yaakov lived in Mitzrayim. That the days of Israel came uh, to die. So now it's using the term Yisrael. Yisrael, uh, as I think I had mentioned in one of the prior classes, 
it refers to Yaakov in his capacity as the father of the nation, not at, just as an individual. He's an individual, he's also the father of the nation. That's why he has two titles, two names. He doesn't have one name replace the other, like Avraham replaces Avram. He has two names because he has two identities. He has an individual identity and a communal identity. So he calls to his son Yosef, He says, if I found favor in your eyes, place your hand under my thigh. Now this is exactly what, yeah, what Avraham Avinu said to, um, to Eliezer or to his servant. To a, we, we assume it's Eliezer, although the text doesn't say that in, in Chaye Sarah. You can go take a look and check, um, check my work. But you'll see that uh, it doesn't say that, but we'll, we'll assume it for argument's sake. Do with me truth, uh, kindness and truth. Chesed ve'emet is maybe an, a, a widely misunderstood term in Tanakh. Emet does mean truth in the ultimate sense, but chesed ve'emet usually has a sense of loyalty. In other words, chesed is a kindness and emet means honoring your word. So he's saying to Yosef to honor your word, swear that you will not bury me in Egypt. So the interesting thing is that's the first thing. In other words, it seems like there are two ideas here. The first one is Yaakov says, I'll not take bury me do not bury me in Egypt. avotai, I shall rest. I shall lie with my forefathers. Now, some interpret that to mean uh, just as a, that's just a way of saying I'm going to die. He, you know, when it says a person, uh, uh, you know, someone lies down with their ancestors, it means they died. That's one way of reading it. Another way of reading it is, uh, means that I want to lie down, meaning I want to be buried with my ancestors. Uh, and you should carry me from Egypt, and I want to be buried in their, uh, in their uh, burial plot, or in this case, cave. And Yosef says, I'm going to do exactly what you said. He makes him swear to it. So he makes him swear to, this, to the effect that he will uh, take care of these burial arrangements, and then, uh, and then he bows. Now, the bowing uh, could be construed, I think, here as um, to, uh, bowing to Hashem, that he's very thankful that he has the ability to, uh, to ensure his burial in the land of uh, Israel. Some interpret it as a, uh, some of the commentaries interpret it as a bowing to, uh, to Yosef and in gratitude or in honor and respect of, uh, even though it's his son. But I think that the simpler, the simpler understanding even could be that he's bowing to Hashem uh, in gratitude that he'll be able to fulfill this hope and dream to be buried in Eretz Yisrael and to be buried in Marat HaMachpelah. But the interesting thing is well, there are two ideas here. One idea here is he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. The other idea is he wants to be buried in, in Israel. It doesn't sound like it's the same thing. Because if he simply wanted to be buried in Israel, he should have just said to Yosef, I have a, re- a request. Please bury me in Israel. Please swear that you'll bury me in Israel. Why does he say, don't, I'll not take bury me in Do not bury me here. Bury me in Israel. Why? So it's, and again, this is, we cannot uh, avoid seeing, at least to my mind, we can't avoid seeing the uh, similarity between this and what Avraham says to his servant when he says, do not take my son back with you to, uh, to, to my, my family where I came from originally, back to Mesopotamia, don't take them. Don't take him back there. Make sure that the girl comes here. Don't bring him back there. There's a, there is an emphasis on the primacy of Eretz Israel, but there's also a negation. There's also a, an attitude against 
uh, going back to um, to his place of origin in the case of Avraham Avinu. And here, it's a desire to distance himself from Egypt. The question is, why does he want to distance himself from Egypt? What's the difference between, why can't he just come out and say, bury me in Israel? Why does he have to make a separate, ne- like we have a concept in, in, in the Torah a lot of times of a negative commandment and a positive commandment. If you have already a positive commandment, bury me in Israel, why do I need a negative commandment? Also, don't bury me in Mitzrayim. It seems redundant. So, the commentaries do pick up on this and they uh, and, and acknowledge that uh, there's a redundancy here. And Rashi says, so f- a, a, one of the interpretations of Rashi is, uh, one of the interpretations, and I, I think is, is a very appealing one, is that I don't want the Egyptians to make me into an idol. I don't want them to make me into a kind of a, sh- make my uh, grave into a shrine. Now we happen to know, see this, is, this statement of the Midrash, um, was uh, Rashi cites, he cites another interpretation also, I don't want to get to it right now, I just want to focus on this first, the, um, that, that, the, uh, um, that the, uh, the Egyptians will make me into, a, into a, an object of worship. This really shows an insight into uh, something very accurate about Egypt, that they, they, the Egyptian culture was very much focused on death and in uh, believed in uh, glorified death to a certain extent, or at least they believed that um, that uh, life really their their religion centered on death, and the pyramids, which we know uh, from seeing pictures of them, and maybe some people have visited there. I'm not sure, but the but the pyramids of Egypt really were actually uh, were actually places of burial for the important. Uh, dignitaries of Egypt for the pharaohs and other uh, other people of note in in Egypt they were buried in pyramids these are not the storehouses that the Jews there's there's a common myth it's a myth that the Jews built the pyramids when they were slaves in Egypt that is not correct they did not build those they built storehouses for Paro the pyramids were built although it's actually quite a marvel of uh, of engineering given given the time that they were built but they were built uh, as as really as burial houses for the pharaohs and other important people where the pharaohs would be buried with all kinds of equipment and all kinds of extra things that they would need in the next world to travel across to the next world and whatever they needed to bring with them and, and all that and all kinds of treasures. So there was a, there was a, a, a definite emphasis on death and the afterlife and, um, and on, in, a, in a way glorifying the places of burial of great people. And in this particular case, Yaakov had a concern that he would be elevated even more maybe or in a different way maybe than a pharaoh would be because people saw him as a kind of an, a larger than life figure. He was, a, he was very old, as we know. He was also um, a person of great stature morally and spiritually and people perceived that and therefore put him a little bit up on a pedestal and there was a concern that they would deify him in some way after his death. In other, it was actually a very logical concern because they did that regularly in Egypt. Uh, and so the idea that they would do that for ya- Yaakov is, would not be a surprise at all. So one, one idea is that he said, I don't want to be buried in Egypt because I don't want to be made into an object of worship here. Now we know that another famous person who didn't want to be buried, didn't want their place of burial to lead uh, to any idolatry, or I should say Hashem didn't want that to happen, is Moshe Rabbeinu. We also don't know where Moshe Rabbeinu was buried. Fascinatingly, of all the people in history who had a, who nobody had a greater impact than Moshe Rabbeinu, 
And uh, even Avram Avinu and Yitzchak Avinu and Yaakov Avinu, we know where they're buried, but Moshe Rabbeinu, we don't know where he's buried, we don't have any grave for him. And in fact, it was purposeful that we should not know, because since he was a person of such great, uh, of such greatness and superiority um, to the ordinary person, we would naturally in, uh, venerate him more than any human being should be venerated, and therefore his burial place was hidden from us for, for that reason. Now, Yaakov was not on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu that he had to worry that the people would, de- that his own family, the Jewish people, would deify him, but he did have a concern that the Egyptians would do so. And, uh, and we see even when Yaakov meets Paro, the first thing that Paro asks him is, How old are you? He wants to know how old Yaakov is, which is a strange thing to ask somebody. Uh, on, a, on a first meeting, someone you've never met before to ask them how old they are, but clearly Yaakov came across as a very old person who was a very distinguished type of looking, uh, you know, person had a distinguished appearance, the appearance of, uh, of uh, you know, th- that comes with age, not just physical age, but with experience and wisdom and the way that he carried himself. And so therefore, Paro was a little bit intimidated by Yaakov. You could see from that, that uh, in, in Egypt in general, and you could see from the way that they reacted to the death of Yaakov, that they put him to a certain extent on a pedestal. He didn't want to be deified or in any way worshipped. So therefore, he said, don't leave me here. But this also shows you something very interesting about the thought processes of the Avot. And I think I mentioned it the other day. I can't remember. But um, when... Um, when the, when the people of uh, uh, the Bnei Chet are making the deal with Avraham Avinu to give him a burial plot for Sarah, it also says they bowed to him. They, they, he bowed to them, rather, in, in gratitude for their willingness to work with him. But they say, You are a prince of God. And the Midrash says that one of the meanings of it was that they saw him as a godly figure. And he said, No, no, no. I might serve God, but I am not a godly figure in any way, don't put me on a pedestal. And this is the way of true uh, tzaddikim. A true tzaddik will never attempt to uh, garner any kind of a uh, veneration for himself, to encourage people to put him on a pedestal or in any way um, deify him or make him larger than life. That's something that would be absolutely the opposite of what a true tzaddik would do, or what any navi, none of, none of our prophets, none of our navi'im, none of our tzaddikim, none of our chachamim ever did that. And really, that's the uh, that is the characteristic of uh, cult leaders and um, and gurus and charlatans that they try to create an os- an aura of being larger than life around themselves in order to manipulate people. But God forbid, our great uh, ancestors and our great tzaddikim and teachers and leaders would never do that. Uh, far from it. Uh, on the contrary, Yaakov, even in his death, when he could have said, oh, what do I care what they do when I die? It's not of any sign- great significance to me what they do when I die. What does he care if they worship him or if they think of him in, in such, as a divine being after he's already gone? What, what, what impact is that going to have on his life? But the answer is that um, he didn't want to be the cause of Abu Dazara in any way. And in, he's, in, he's, he's teaching the Egyptians by his refusal to uh, be buried in Egypt, how important it is that no human being be raised to the level of a god or be deified in any way. That's what he's really conveying to them by his insistence that he not be buried in Egypt, is that he's rejecting that death cult of Egypt and he's rejecting the, um, any kind of ancestor worship or any kind of holy person worship that, they, that might have been 
uh, prevalent in Egypt. We know that they thought of the pharaohs as gods, and they most likely thought of other people that were very distinguished as gods as well. So he didn't want to be in any way a part of that, even in death. And that meant, that's not because it's going to affect him when he's dead. When he's dead, he's not going to have any relationship to what's going on. The point is that by making it clear that he didn't want that, even when he was, you know, that he didn't want that even after he died, that sent the message that, uh, that this is something that he rejects and that he, he doesn't want any part of. And so that, that is the, the Yaakov Avinu's insistence, al I don't want to be buried in Egypt. Don't bury me in Egypt. But on the other hand, um, he also says, I want, I want to be buried. I do want to be buried in, uh, in Eretz Israel. Now, what does that what does that mean? Being buried in Eretz Israel has a different a different implication. Being buried in Eretz Israel, first of all, means that that's my true home. That's the place that I identify. That uh, that my my genuine self is as a Jew and a member of the Jewish people and a resident of Eretz Israel. And even though I might be temporarily living in Egypt for practical reasons, it's not my final destination. My final destination is Israel. That's part of it. But it also means I'm assuming my identity as one of the Avot. I recognize that I play a role. And that's probably the reason why the Torah here employs the name for Yaakov, Yisrael. Because he's saying, I recognize that in order to, um, my, my final step in being one of the Avot, one of the fathers and the patriarchs and the founders of this nation is to be buried in Marat HaMachpelah because Marat HaMachpelah is the place where the patriarchs and matriarchs are to be laid to rest. And the reason is because that gives them an eternal presence in Eretz Yisrael and allows the, 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 their descendants to relate to them, to identify with them, to connect with them as real beings. Because one, um, one of the things that having a, a grave to visit does is that it allows, and it, generally we're not, grave, we're not focused on graves very much in the Torah. It's not something that the Torah or the Tanakh emphasizes at all. If anything, it keeps us away from graves and considers them to be impure, uh, ritually impure, and to have tum'ah. So, so as, a, as a rule, they are not a, a, an emphasis in, in Tanakh, except for Marat and maybe Kever Rachel also. But generally, not an emphasis in the Torah. So what here is the, the reason for the emphasis? Because for the, av- the Avot are, and the Imahot are people that we need to identify with. They're people that we need to be able to connect with. And one of the things that happens when you visit the grave of a, per- of a historic figure is that you, re- you relate to the reality of their existence. Um, instead of being just an abstract concept, this certain person from the past suddenly uh, becomes very real, very concrete and very real, and you're able to relate to them in a, in a more direct way, a more genuine way, and to, uh, to identify with them and hopefully to aspire to be like them and to see them as role models, as opposed to somebody who's just an abstract idea that you read about in a book. It's much harder to uh, connect with them on that personal level. And so for the Avot, who are supposed to be our role models in that way, we need the Marat HaMachbelah. Interesting for, for, uh, for Moshe Rabbeinu, we don't have that. We, don't, we also don't include Moshe Rabbeinu in our tefillot. We never say, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, Elohei Moshe. We don't mention Moshe in our prayers ever. Um, we only mention Avotenu, our ancestors, which is a very interesting thing because it again points to the notion that Moshe Rabbeinu was a little bit of an outlier. He was a unique Character, And we're going to learn about him, of course, in the upcoming parashiot, what made him so unique. But his prophecy, the nature of his prophecy and the nature of his life uh, were on a different plane. They're not really 
things that we can emulate because he was uh, from the very outset, from the beginning of his life, was uh, the beneficiary of divine intervention, even as a baby. And uh, throughout every step of, the, of his life, he was the beneficiary of divine intervention. And he was even able to be on the mountain, not eating or drinking for 40 days and 40 nights, multiple times. So we see that he was like the, the, the rabbis say that essentially he, he ascended to the level as close to an angelic level, as close to a malach, as a human being could ever be, and it's quite possible that that could never be repeated, which is why we know that there's never going to be another Torah and there's never going to be another revelation on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, because Moshe Rabbeinu himself was the product of divine intervention. The level that he reached of connection to God, of knowledge of God, of, of prophecy, is something that is not to be ever going to be repeated. And so therefore we can't really emulate him or relate to him as an individual the way that we could to the Avot who lived in this world and who struggled in this world and who uh, who, who stayed committed to their values in this world and ordinary existence. I wouldn't call them ordinary by any stretch of the term, but they, were, but they lived in, ordinary, in the ordinary world and they dealt with ordinary things and they, uh, they were human beings and that, that we can relate to as human beings, just human beings with values and principles that were, uh, uh, in, were superior to ours, but essentially human beings in, a, in that sense. So, so Moshe Rabbeinu, is not a person that we can easily relate to as a, as, a, as a human being because his humanity was subordinated to his identity as a prophet and his, uh, his nifu'ah personality, so to speak. His, his role as a navi was so pronounced and so overwhelming that it took over his humanity to a certain extent and he was able to abstain from eating and drinking. He separated from his wife. Um, so he, he completely divorced himself from the physical um, to the extent possible or even beyond the extent possible it was supernaturally enabled to do that whereas the uh, the avot were not like that so they are more role models we can connect to so marat is very critical because it's a place we can go and that's why it's so important that we make sure that it stays uh, the possession of the jewish people because we want to be able to relate to and identify with the avot because they're our inspiration they're the ones that left everything behind to establish this movement of proclaiming God's oneness in the world and God's truth in the world and the, the emulation of God's ways in the world and, and the application of his wisdom to the world. All of these things that the Avod did, they did in Eretz Yisrael, having separated from every other culture on earth in order to establish a, uh, a one location, which would be a holy land that would be devoted to Hashem. And that is the... Uh, and, and that... Is the, uh, is the reason for Marat HaMachbeila being so critical. Normally we don't focus on graves, we don't focus on, uh, on, on, on uh, visiting cemeteries and things like that. I mean, people do for their families, but I'm saying in the Torah, the Tanakh, it's not something that's emphasized at all. Uh, it's, oh, we only encounter it with Marat HaMachbeila. So, so Yaakov Avinu understood the significance of Marat HaMachbeila for the future of the Jewish people. He was, so he was making a statement that he didn't want to be buried in, in, in Mitzrayim because he didn't want to be an object of idolatrous worship in Mitzrayim, showing his rejection of idolatry even after his death that he didn't want to be utilized, uh, hijacked in any cult of idolatry. But he's also emphasizing his role as one of the avot that he wants to be buried in Maratha Machpelah together with the other avot to form the next link in the chain for the future of the Jewish people. So pointing the way really to the future of the Jewish people. But the only reason I mentioned Moshe Rabbeinu is to say that the reason why he's not buried in Maratha Machpelah and the reason why he doesn't have, we don't even know where his burial place is, is because he doesn't serve that function for us of being someone that we can really identify with the way that we're supposed to identify with the Avot. Now, when I say identify, again, 
I don't mean that we can really identify with them fully because obviously they're way beyond us in so many, you know, in, in so many aspects of their, uh, of, of their lives, but at least that they existed in what we would call the normal world and, uh, and yet flourished. That's what allows us to identify with them. So this is the, uh, what, what, uh, what uh, Yaakov Avinu is asking Yosef to do. Now, we have to realize, and, and again, he's putting Yosef in a difficult position, and, and, and this is where I hear also echoes again, like I mentioned, of Chaye Sarah. In Vaychi Yaakov, there are echoes of Chaye Sarah, which is uh, asking for an oath from somebody who has to deal with a, a complicated mission that emphasizes the primacy of Eretz Yisrael over Galut, over the exile. In the case of, uh, in the case of Eliezer and Abraham, it was the issue of Mesopotamia or the issue of Aram Narayim or whatever, um, or, or, you know, to, to go to, uh, back to Ur Kasdim or Haran. But in the case of, uh, in the case here, it's, it's Mitzrayim versus, um, uh, versus uh, Eretz Israel. And Yosef is again in a very challenging position because just like, yeah, just like Eliezer, and again, um, this is a, a, these are parallels that just came, uh, you know, came to my attention this year that just as Eliezer has to go, or the servant of Avram has to go into, uh, into uh, Haran and find, um, find a wife for Yitzchak and then return with her and be able to extract her from there and bring her back to Eretz Yisrael, even though it's a very complicated process, Yosef is going to have to do the same thing, extract his father uh, from uh, the politics of Egypt and be able to return him to his, uh, you know, his rightful place in Eretz Yisrael where he can be buried um, according, to the, uh, according to the command. So he makes Yosef swear. Now, why does he make Yosef swear? It becomes clear later on why that might have been. Because you would say, well, what does Yosef have to swear? What, he doesn't trust his own son? I mean, to, uh, to ensure his burial in the, in the place that he desires? It's not that. It's not that he doesn't trust him. It's that he knows that Yosef is going to face an uphill political battle to get this to happen. And that the reason, as I've mentioned in previous shiurim, is because Yosef became very much a, uh, a fixture in Egypt. He became a, a, a uh, he's obviously a, a political figure of great prominence in Egypt. He is an Egyptian, uh, from, for all intents and purposes on the outside, he's an Egyptian, even though everybody knows he really has dual loyalties, as they say today. Um, but he is, for all intents and purposes, an Egyptian and a member of the Egyptian royal court. And for him to say, I'm going to bury my father in a different country would be potentially a huge offense to Paro and an embarrassment to Paro that after he went to all this, these lengths, and we mentioned when we learned Parashat Vayigash, <coughs> that after the part of the reason why Paro wanted, was so happy for Yosef to bring his family and relocate them in Egypt was because that gave legitimacy, not only to Yosef as a sort of mystery character that he actually does have a family, but also that his family is now part of Egypt. Now, of course, Yosef compromised and made sure that his, uh, or, you know, he ensured that his family would not have to be um, uh, living in the center of Egypt and that they, were, they would have their own independent community so they could preserve their traditions and their independence and separateness and Kiddushah. However, 
uh, they, the fact was that for Paro, it was a point of pride that Yosef's family had relocated to Egypt and accepted it as their home away from home. And he wanted even, he wanted Yosef's brothers to join, you know, to, to also be employed by the state. Oh, if you have anybody who could work on my flocks, who could work for me, I want that. He wanted them to become more enmeshed because it added to the legitimacy of Yosef's identity as part of the Egyptian machine. But asking for his father to be buried in another country is going to be very controversial. And therefore Yaakov, by making Yosef swear, is number one, forcing Yosef to make a commitment that might not be as easy for him to fulfill as it seems on the surface, but also will be, end up being very useful to Yosef because he will blame his, uh, his need to transport his father to Israel on the fact that he swore to his father. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what happens when his father dies. If we fast forward a little bit, to the uh, <clears throat> to the um, after the death of Yaakov, when Yosef speaks to Paro, there's actually a couple of interesting things I would point out. Not just that, uh, not just that he he has to negotiate political complications with with his uh, request. That his request is controversial, but uh, it would be like if someone who wasn't a senator or a congressman or some high-level official in America wanted to be buried in Israel. They were Jewish and they were buried in Israel. People would say, what kind of, a, uh, what kind of, a, uh, a, what kind of an American are you that you don't want to be buried here? So that was the problem that Yosef had to deal with with his father. He sp- but notice also, first of all, Yosef tries to give honor and uh, respect to the, the customs of Egypt by having his father embalmed, even though that was not a typical Israelite custom, it wasn't a Jewish custom. But they had the 40 days of the embalming. And if you look, uh, and, and then they mourned, Egypt mourned the death of, um, of, of uh, Yaakov for 70 days, including the 40 days of the embalming and the 30 days afterwards. And if you look it up, you'll see that that was actually the Egyptian tradition for the great people who died. When people who were very distinguished died, they had a 70-day mourning period. So this is very accurate, and you know, meaning this fits very well with what we know of Egypt at the time. But it shows you that what Yosef is doing is trying to do as much as he can to pay tribute to his Egyptian identity, to show honor to Egypt, to show that he does value his role, his position in Egypt and his status as a resident and citizen of Egypt and that he, that he um, is willing to, uh, uh, you know, that he wants to uh, show a, um, also an appreciation of their customs and a respect for their customs where they don't conflict with his commitment to his father to bury him in Israel. He's perfectly willing to have an Egyptian funeral in accordance with their practices because he didn't want to ruffle any feathers and he wanted to show respect. So the, uh, it's, a, um, it's similar to uh, sometimes in, uh, like for instance, uh, Lahavdil, just to use a, you know, when, when uh, just this past year, like uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and obviously she's Jewish, was Jewish and would have had a Jewish burial, but she, they made her lie in state for a certain amount of time because that's what they do with American dignitaries, people who are higher ups in the American government or who are considered to be very important in American society, that they, leave, they, they have their body uh, displayed for a certain amount of time. It's considered a kavod, an honor to them, to have that, uh, to have that distinction, they did it for. They've done it for, uh, you know, for presidents and things like that. And they also um, have done it for some other uh, key leaders. 
And so they did that for her because I guess that's what they would do for any Supreme Court justice who passed away. So that was in her identity as a Supreme Court justice. And if she had not had that done, so it would have called into question her, uh, her status or her, um, you know, her, uh, let's say, loyalty to her American, um, to the American people. So she had to, they had to have her undergo that, um, that treatment because that was what American officials or American dignitaries do. So here, Egyptian, great Egyptians are mourned for 70 days and they're embalmed. And so that's what they did for Yaakov to show that they were honoring that, um, those customs. But then Yosef approaches Paro. And the way he approaches Paro is very interesting. He doesn't approach Paro. It says that, Paro, that he spoke to the officials in the house of Paro. It says that he said that Yosef spoke to the house of Paro. And meaning it would be like if you said, I communicated with the White House. So he didn't communicate directly with the president. He communicated with the White House. He said, Speak now to the, in the ears of Paro. And that, meaning he doesn't directly address this request to Paro. He asks people to ask Paro, which is very strange because Yosef, after all, is such a high up person. He's a person who is of such great influence and position in Egypt. Why does he have to have an intermediary do this? But he says, please ask Paro the following. My father made me swear and he said, I'm about to die. In the, um, in the uh, grave that I, bury, that, I, that I dug for myself or that I purchased for myself in Eretz Yisrael or in Eretz Kenan, you should, you should bury me there. So I said, please let me do it. So Yosef is in a way blaming the fact that his father made him swear on his uh, request to be able to take his father up to, um, uh, you know, back to Israel. So the, the interesting thing is that you see that there seems to be some strain here, some tension between Yosef and Paro, because Paro can, Yosef cannot approach Paro directly about this. So obviously he either thinks that the, the request itself is going to offend Paro, so he wants to do it indirectly, or he's already become somewhat estranged from Paro, which is quite possible that maybe over the years they grew apart. Maybe since his family has come, he's pulled back a little bit. We don't know exactly. But, or maybe this whole situation with the death of his father and his father not wanting to be buried in Egypt upset Paro. We don't know exactly. But what seems clear is that Yosef was not able to address this directly to Paro indicates that there was some rupture in their relationship or in their communication at this point. And what does Paro answer? Now the commentaries pick up on this, that what does Paro say? You may go and bury your father like he made you swear. So what does Rashi say? If it were not for the fact that you swore, I wouldn't let you do it. In other words, it would be such an offense to the Egyptian people that, ya- that Yaakov, that we welcomed as a guest here, that we hosted him, that we hosted his son and all of his children. Uh, that, and, and remember also that we, we learned last week's parasha that Yosef also had set up a situation where his, par- his entire family and extended family, all 70 of them, were receiving, you know, were receiving their sustenance directly from the house of the paro. They were, they were, gover- they were on the government uh, uh, wages and government... Uh, uh, benefits even without having to contribute anything and without really being Egyptian so they were benefiting in all these ways and yet you don't want your father to be buried here it could be taken as an offense but he said since you swore so I'm going to honor that you swore and I'm going to let you take him so that itself indicates the fact that he said only because you swore 
I'm going to let you do it, indicates that there was some hesitation on the part of Paro. But in the end, what happens is that there's a grand funeral for, for, for Yaakov. And this grand funeral involves kol avde paro, ziknei beto, all of the elders and the people of the household of paro, vechol ziknei eretz mitzrayim and all the elders of Egypt, vechol bet Yosef vechavu bet aviv, and of course all of Yosef's family and so on went except for the children um, that stayed behind. Vayal imo gam rechav gam parashim vayam achanek kaved mod. What is Egypt doing with this funeral really? What Egypt is doing with this funeral is saying it's a state funeral, it's an Egyptian funeral. Even though it's being conducted outside of Egypt in Eretz Israel, this is a funeral that is being conducted under the auspices of Egypt. It's an Egyptian funeral in their mind. They come to a. Uh, they came. They did a, a period of mourning of seven days, and that's one of the remazim. That's one of the hints to the idea of Shiva that we find in the Torah. But they uh, they had all, all these. Um, all of these uh, uh, eulogies. And here comes a pasuk that's one of those psukim, one of those verses that you ask yourself, why is this written in the Torah at all? What's the relevance of it? The people of, the, the Canaanite people saw this huge mourning event in this area. And they said, This is a very heavy mourning of Egypt. Not mourning with M-O-R-N, Morning, M O U R N, right? Set, you know, a, a morning for the dead. Evel Kavetzel Mitzrayim. Alken Kawashima Avel Mitzrayim. Therefore, they named the area where they had this huge funeral and all of these Hespedim, all of these eulogies. They called it Avel Mitzrayim, Meshebeva Yardin, which is on the other side of the Jordan. What does that show you? Why is that Pasuk important? That the Kina'anim thought it was an Egyptian funeral and therefore they named the place Avil Mitzrayim. Why is that in any way significant to us? Why is that important to the Torah to mention that? What it shows, I think, is that this was conducted as an Egyptian funeral. This was a state funeral. This was all of the, the, all of the, uh, uh, of the uh, machinery, so to speak, of Egypt was following this, uh, this funeral procession. It's like the way that, let's say, in our country, if a police officer passes away or somebody in the military passes away, that the military or the police, they conduct the funeral according to certain rules of their order, of the, uh, of the firefighters, of the police, of the, um, of the military. And even though the person might be buried in, a, in their own cemetery, in a Jewish cemetery in this case, still there would be a, uh, there would be a pomp and circumstance surrounding the, uh, the burial, surrounding the funeral that would indicate that it was a military funeral, police funeral or whatever. So here also what was going on was that the, it was being conducted with such pomp and circumstance in terms of the Egyptian element that it was perceived. The reason the Torah is telling you that it was perceived as an Egyptian funeral. And I think that this is part of the idea that Egypt is behind this. So in a way, they're, they're getting the satisfaction of saying that this is an Egyptian funeral, even as they're burying uh, Yaakov in uh, Eretz Canaan in, a, in what to them is a foreign land. So this is a remarkable thing that the Egyptians want to lay claim to this funeral. They don't want to let it go, even though uh, in a way it could be an affront to them that Yaakov is being buried in, in, in Israel. And that, that tells you something about the relationship 
that Egypt had with Yosef and with Yaakov, that they, they desired a connection with Yaakov and with Yosef. They appreciated and respected what they represented. Perhaps they were a little insulted that Yaakov did not want to be buried in Egypt, but nevertheless, they saw him as an honorary Egyptian, uh, an honorary Egyptian citizen, somebody for whom they had great respect, and they wanted to make his, uh, his um, funeral as dignified according to their standards and concept as it could be a proper Egyptian state funeral, which showed that the um, you know that the, the the glory of Egypt, and this is one of the interesting midrashim. One of the midrashim tells us that when they came to Eretz Israel for the funeral, that um, that the the people of Kenaan, the Malchei Kenaan, uh, and the the people of the um, that the uh, uh, that when they when they came. They were they were confronted by the um, by the the sons of Ishmael, and they were con- they were confronted by the um, by the Kenaanim who wanted to stop them. But then, when they saw that Yosef had put his crown on the um, on the uh, coffin of Yaakov, all of a sudden, all of these Kenaanim also took off their crowns. All these kings from Kenaan also took off their crowns and put them likewise on the uh, coffin of Yaakov. And then all of the objection, all of the resistance was, you know, was put aside, was, was, was set aside. So then the, um, Rashi brings it here, I believe. He says, where is it? He says, uh, Right, but where's the beginning of it? I think it's missing a part here and here. Okay. But the point is that the, that this opposition was dropped when they saw the honor that uh, that when they saw the honor of Yosef, uh, that his crown was on the Aaron, they also put their crowns on the Aaron. But what's the idea? The idea was that they saw that the uh, that you that the the political might and the glory of Egypt was subordinated, was being subordinated to the greatness of Yaakov, that they recognized something in Yaakov and something in Yosef that was greater than what they had. And that's why they wanted to be a part of it. And that's why they wanted to support it. And that's why they wanted to, um, to claim some, some aspect of it. And perhaps that's why Yaakov was so circumspect about the idea of being buried in Egypt, because he knew that they, in a way, laid claim to him, saw him as a, an honorary uh, Egyptian, and, and, and therefore wanted, uh, wanted him to be part of their pantheon of you know, ancestors that they would worship or whatever. So he, he didn't want that. So, but they, the, the fact that they gave of all of the glory and pomp and circumstance of the state to honor Yaakov demonstrated that there was something that even their sense of glory and power and greatness and conquest and empire was subordinated to this uh, greatness of Yaakov, something beyond, something that was superior to what they had. And when the Malchei Kena'an, the idea is that when the, when the uh, kings of Kena'an saw that, they recognized there was something even higher than the power that they, uh, they processed the world. People generally process the world 
in terms of human power and the, the equations of human power, who has more power, who has more wealth, who has more influence, and these balances and counterbalances of human power and influence and control are what they think makes the world go around. So when they see that the, the mighty empire of Egypt has more respect for this person, for this Yaakov, than they do even for their own king, that their own king, who was perceived as a king, Yosef, is taking off his crown and showing honor to his, to his father, they too recognize that there must be something here superior even to what they thought was the greatest aspiration of a human being, which was to possess power and to have mastery and to have kingship, that that was what they thought was the greatest thing. But when they see that even kingship is being mobilized in service of and in honor and tribute to Yaakov with something more than that, that's the uh, that's why they took off their crowns and they and and that's why they they showed honor to the um, to Yaakov as well. That's what the midrash is, I believe, trying to get at that idea. There's also the idea that that Yaakov had his sons walk around his Aaron, carry his Aaron in the same formation that eventually the um, that eventually the Mishkan would be carried by the tribes. The tribes would be surrounding the Mishkan according to the same formation that his that the sons of Yaakov stood around his coffin. So what's the connection between the two things? Why would why would there be a relationship between the Mishkan, which where you know which has nothing to do with death and nothing to do with burial? Why would the formation of tribes around the Mishkan be connected in any way to the formation of sons of Yaakov around his coffin at his burial, the two things don't seem to have any connection at all. But if you understand that really what makes Yaakov significant and what makes this uh, what makes this whole processional significant is that Yaakov represents the divine presence. He represents a person who had knowledge of God and lived by the wisdom of God and sanctified God's name and everything that he did and therefore was held up, uh, you know, was was uh, held up on and, and placed on a pedestal to a certain extent as a as a reflection of that. Um, that's the what the Mishkan is. The Mishkan is a an inst, is on an institutional level something that represents the divine presence, the Shekhinah. But we always say that a great person, Tamir Chacham, or a Tzaddik, or Yaakov Avinu, is him is also an embodiment of the Shekhinah of the divine presence from the way that he thinks, from the way that he acts and comports himself. He's also a reflection of the divine presence, and that's what we always say about Tamid Chachamim and great people that they are an embodiment of the divine presence. A person who argues with his teacher is like arguing with the Shekhinah. A person who's disrespectful is like disrespectful to the Shekhinah. And it also says that Yaakov Avinu's face. One of the one of the midrashim says that the face of Yaakov Avinu is inscribed on the Kisei Kavod. It's it's inscribed on the the throne of glory of God. What does that mean? It means again that Yaakov in his in some way represented reflected the divine presence when people when people interacted with him. Um, they perceived the uh, the wisdom of God and the glory of God and the sanctity of of Hashem through their interaction. Uh, with Yaakov because of his his greatness, so uh, he had this aura, but it wasn't just an aura; it had wisdom and and substance behind it, and so that's the uh, what what's significant about this processional, this funeral procession, is that Egypt, for all of its material glory and wealth and success, is subordinating that to honor. Uh, someone who was who was had nothing to do with any of those uh, with with any of those definitions 
of greatness with the material definition or the honor-based definition or the conquest-based definition. And yet they were honoring this person. They were recognizing his um, superiority to them. And that's, that's part of the significance here of the, um, uh, of the processional. And so at the end of the, of the, of the parasha, of course, which is also the end of the, um, uh, the end of the uh, book. I mean, then, then you have the issue that when they go back, the brothers are very afraid that, yeah, that Yosef has now reassumed an Egyptian identity and will turn against them. Um, and and it, the text intimates that because when they go to bury, it says that the sons did for Yaakov what he commanded them. But then when they come back to Egypt, it says they came back to Egypt, Vayashov Yosef Mitzrayim, Yosef came back to Egypt, he and his brothers, meaning they were separated again. They were And the, the Midrash must have picked up on that little nuance because it says that the brothers noticed that they weren't invited for dinner anymore to Yosef's house. It wasn't because of social distancing. It was because they, they thought it was because... Uh, uh, because their fa- he only did that to be nice to their father, but now that the father was gone, he wasn't going to do that anymore, and so they thought that he had turned on them, and maybe he would take revenge on them. But I think that the Chazal, the rabbis are picking up on this nuance, that it says, Vayashov Yosef Mitzrayim, Ahu Ve'echav, that they were separate when they came back. He reassumed his Egyptian identity, and they went back to living in Goshen, and they wondered, what was the, who was the real Yosef? Was the real Yosef the Yosef who seemed to be uh, desirous of a unity of the family, or is the real Yosef the Egyptian Yosef? And of course, Yosef has to clear that up. He clears that up in two ways. First of all, by making final peace with his brothers, but also by saying, I know God is going to one day remember you and you should take my bones out of here and bury me also in Israel. So in that way, the end of the book of Bereshit gets tied to the book of Shemot because Yaakov has already returned to Eretz Israel, but the rest of the Jewish people are currently still in Eretz Israel and we, I'm still in Mitzrayim and we know that they're going to endure quite a lot before they return to Eretz Israel. Yosef's non-burial, the fact that Yosef is kept in a, uh, his bones are kept in a casket but not buried in Egypt is a constant reminder of the fact that the Jewish people are not to permanently settle in Egypt, that they have a different destination, the destination is Israel, and that this time that Yosef and Yaakov will be reunited again, but this time instead of Yaakov coming down to Egypt to be reunited with Yosef, Yosef, so to speak, will go back to Israel to be reunited with his father because that's his ultimate, um, his ultimate target is to return. And we know that when, when the Jewish people leave Egypt, one of the things that Moshe Rabbeinu does in the beginning of Parashat uh, Bishalach is he takes the um, he takes the bones of Yosef in order to carry them out of Egypt and to convey them to Eretz Israel, and eventually in the book of Yoshua they are buried. Uh, they are buried at the end of the book of Yoshua. Um, Yoshua is actually a descendant of Yosef, so that fits perfectly with the uh, closure of the story there. But Yos- but the end, the very end of the parasha, which is really the end of the book of Shemot, with Yosef's burial unresolved. It, that tension, that cliffhanger, um, leads the way into the book of Shemot, which is the settlement of the Jewish people in Israel, but it's never fully settled and it's never a full enmeshment with Egypt. Ultimately, it's only meant to be temporary and they're going to emerge from Egypt and return to Eretz Israel. And that is the ultimate statement of uh, Yosef, that he's not really essentially an Egyptian because he didn't want to be buried in Egypt. He wanted his final destination to be Eretz Israel together with the, uh, you know, together with his people and together with Am Yisrael and to be part of the future of Am Yisrael, even in death. He wanted his destiny to be linked 
uh, with that of Am Yisrael and to be understood as someone who was a part of the history and a part of the unfolding, uh, the unfolding development of, of the Jewish people. So this is the end of the book of, of Bereshit, but I think this whole issue of, of politics here and of exile versus Eretz Yisrael and of Egypt versus Eretz Yisrael or other lands versus Eretz Yisrael is really a key principle, uh, a key theme in the uh, in the Torah in general and in the book of uh, in the the conclusion of the book of Bereshit in particular, and seeing how the glory of Egypt still through even with the glory of Egypt even with all of that there was still an ability to recognize the greatness of Yaakov there was still an ability to recognize the unique greatness of Yosef as much as different as it was from their concept of greatness like it says. Um, in kavod el Torah, the true kavod is the Torah, is the wisdom that they manifested to the Egyptians and that the Egyptians were able to perceive and to appreciate. And that is true throughout history. And, and that's supposed to be true in our future as well, that when the Jewish people live according to the Torah, they live according to the wisdom of God, they manifest the presence of God in the world and the nations of the world will say, Rak am chacham that these people are a wise and understanding people that are close to God. They'll see that through the Jewish people, through the way that the Jewish people think and act and hopefully govern uh, their society. So that is um, what the, uh, the funeral procession, why it's so important, but it also speaks of the potential that the Jewish people have to have an impact, even on the mightiest empire, if they are genuine uh, examples of the way of God in the uh, in in their manner of thought and conduct. So that's really what we should aspire to, to sanctify God's name. Or as David Melech said beautifully in um, in Tehilim, he said, "I speak of your laws, neged melachim velo evosh. I speak of your uh, of your edot." He actually said, "I speak of your testimonies of your Torah in front of kings, and I'm not embarrassed." In other words, I share the wisdom of Torah with everyone. Even kings that you might think, what do they care about divrei Torah? What do they care about talking about Hashem? What do they care about mitzvot, about any of that? No, nope, I'll speak it. I'll speak of the Torah to those people and I won't be embarrassed because I know that they'll be able to see the wisdom and the depth of the Torah and uh, if, you know, if I give them the opportunity to hear it. And that was what Yaakov and what Yosef taught us. And really what the Jewish people are supposed to live up to as well. So I want to thank everyone for joining. Bezrat Hashem, next week we will be already up to the book of Shemot. And uh, I look forward to seeing everybody back.